Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Joel, chapter 2. As we continue our studies in the Minor Prophets, Joel, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27 this evening, but I will read to verse 32 to set the context. In fact, in the Hebrew, uh, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32 is actually chapter 3, and then chapter 3 in English is actually chapter 4 in the Hebrew. But So clearly they recognize 28 through 32 is an important passage, so I'll just spend time on that next week. Uh, so we'll look at verses 18 through 27 this evening, but I will read to verse 32. So Joel 2, begin reading at verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame." And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord our God, we are thankful for the gladness that we have in Christ, and we are thankful for the gladness and the hope of a restored land. And we are thankful that we are citizens of that heavenly country that Christ has purchased for us, that inheritance that awaits us. We are thankful that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of that purchased redemption and purchased inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. And we know that as Christ said, this, his kingdom is not of this world. And so we know that it is an eternal kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom, one where there is eternal life, eternal blessedness, eternal bliss, where there is no more sin and sorrow and suffering. And so we're thankful that church, when we gather, is the glimpse and foretaste of that. 
We're thankful that local churches are that embassy. When we come in this night, we come to heaven. We come to your house. We come to sing with the saints of heaven and to sing together. Thank you for this privilege that it is. And we pray that this night would be a time of refreshment, knowing that you pity us, knowing that you bless us, knowing that you refresh us, and you refresh us in the truth of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So give us that refreshment that we need this night as we consider uh, what our sin deserves, but also consider where life lies and what you've given us in Christ Jesus. So may we be rejoicing this evening. May we find our hope this evening. May we see where our faith is this evening and the blessings that we receive from you. So be with us by your spirit. Give us understanding by your spirit. May we continue to know more about you, continue to know more about your redemptive history, and know more about what you do for your people. So be with us this night, we pray. Strengthen your saints, save sinners, and in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, true believers can sometimes be perplexed by God's delay in answering our prayers. We go to him, we cry out to him, but he seems to be taking his time when we bring our requests before him. And sometimes even for the strongest Christian, we can ask, does God really answer our prayers? Well, the rest of the book of Joel seems to answer that very question. God does answer the cries of his people who turn to the Lord in fear. And remember, the nation of Israel was in a dire situation of their own doing. They had broken the covenant that God made with them. They had done and violated uh, the law that God had given unto them. And thus, now the curses that are written in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus are now coming upon the people of Israel. We see this with the locusts, and we see this with the day of the Lord when Israel goes into captivity, when Judah, the southern kingdom, goes into captivity in 586 B.C., And so we see that even in the midst of that day of the Lord, even in the midst of the locusts that have come, we see what the people of God are to do. They need to cry out to the Lord. They need to turn to him. They need to look to the Lord God most high, and they need to call upon his name. And we see what he is going to do to those who call upon his name. We see the blessings he's going to give to those who repent and turn to the Lord in fear. And so we do see this message of hope that is provided for the remnant Remember, the remnant are going to go into captivity as well. But here is a hope for the faithful people, the true believers in Israel at this time. And it's also a message of hope for us as well. We see that he uses old covenant language to describe the new covenant realities and what the restoration is going to look like. Now, as far as the setting of the book of Joel, I do think it is pre-exile. I do think it is prior to that captivity in 586. It seems to be after the northern kingdom is taken away, although uh, some commentators think that it perhaps is before the northern kingdom is taken away, but uh, it's really difficult to know. But the main thing seems to be is, is prior to exile, as we see this language of temple in Jerusalem and Zion, And then we're going to see now what's going to happen after that exile and the refreshment and restoration that God shall bring or the prophecy of what that restoration shall look like. So he's warned about the destruction. There is this call to repentance that we saw uh, last week. And then tonight we're going to see the hope for refreshment, this refreshment that God is going to bring. 
And as we saw, there's that, those, uh, it's separated with four oracles, four prophecies. There's the immediate disaster with the locusts. There's the impending disaster with the day of the Lord. And now the Lord is going to answer. He's going to answer and give an answer to those very things. We know that God is behind the locusts. God is behind the day of the Lord. But God also is the one who provides the way of salvation. God is also the one who gives hope and refreshment for an undeserving people, for a people that turn to the Lord in fear. Now, as far as the problem goes, it's the problem that we've seen throughout this book, the problem of a land laid bare because of sin. Remember, Joel is all about what sin deserves. Uh, uh, sin deserves a land laid waste. Sin deserves the righteous punishment of God. Sin deserves everlasting damnation and everlasting punishment because we've sinned against an everlasting God. But this everlasting God gives the way of salvation, provides this message of hope in the one who is the eternal God. And so we see uh, in Joel chapter 2, we see the blessed remedy for those who turn to God, who call out to God, which is so important for this book. We see that the God who justly punishes is the God who freely forgives. And so have we cried out to him? Will we cry out to him? Will we call upon the name of the Lord? And as Joel 2 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so in verses 18 through 27, the prophet calls the people and the land to rejoice and be glad. The land needs to rejoice and be glad. The people need to rejoice and be glad because of the wonderful thing God has done to restore his people. So it is a prophecy concerning restoration for the people of God. And we will look at it under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see a land that is pitied in verses 18 through 20. Secondly, we'll see a land that rejoices in verses 21 through 24. And then lastly, we'll see a land that is restored in verses 25 through 27. So land pitied, land rejoicing, and land restored. So let's first look at a land that is pitied in verses 18 uh, through 20. And again, context is important. I've already mentioned the locusts and the coming day of the Lord, the covenant cursing. Uh, as we saw with the locusts, it's difficult to determine whether it's literal or whether it's figurative, although certainly there were literal locusts during the time of the Exodus. Certainly God actually did bring that plague of locusts upon the people of Egypt. And certainly as well, locusts can also be used to describe an army. So could it, could it be that there was an army or could it be as well that there are locusts? Probably both and. I'm usually a both and uh, kind of guy because these curses blend together. Certainly the locusts are a sign and a warning that the impending destruction is going to come to pass if the people do not do what God says. And even with respect to the restoration, the latter part of the book of Joel, we do see that it blends together. He's going to bring restoration from the land laid waste, but also restoration from a people that have gone into captivity. And so in both instances, whether it was the locusts or whether it was the day of the Lord and the impending coming of Babylon's army, we see that the people of God are supposed to go to church and cry out. Go to the house of God, cry out to God. When there's locusts, when there is uh, the land laid waste, when the army is coming, the people of God need to go out and cry out to the Lord God Most High. They need to turn to the Lord God. Why should they say, why should the nation say to among the peoples, where is their God? 
And in Deuteronomy 4, verses 29 and 30, we see the prophecy concerning Israel's captivity, but also the prophecy concerning Israel's restoration. If they turn, if they repent, if they turn to the Lord God, God will restore them because he is a God who pities. And that's exactly what we see in verses 18 through 20. We see in verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous. The Lord will be jealous for his land and pity his people. What we're going to see in verses 18 through 27 is a reversal of what we saw in chapter 1. We see that God had brought an army against his land, and now we see the Lord God is going to be the one who pities his land. Often in the scriptures, reversal language is used, both with respect to uh, destruction for sin, going back to Egypt. We saw that in the book of Hosea. It wasn't as though they actually went back to Egypt, but they went back into captivity, uh, and the northern kingdom went into captivity by way of Assyria. So there's the negative reversals, but there's the positive reversals as well. God brought an army against his land, and now we see that he's going to be zealous for his land. He's going to love his land. He's going to love his people and care for them. We see that he pities them. We see that he considers them. We see that he loves his land and loves his people. Now, as far as the fulfillment goes with respect to the restoration, there is the return to the land in Ezra, Nehemiah, right? There's three returns under Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. And so we see that there. But then ultimately it comes in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus both in his first coming and in his second coming. Because you see when they return to the land after the exile, we see that they don't have a king. They need a king to be on the throne in Jerusalem. Then we see the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and he is that very king. But we still need a land, don't we? We still need a land for the people of God. And that's exactly what Christ has purchased for his people. There is inheritance language used in Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14, talking about the down payment of the Holy Spirit for the purchased possession. And that language alludes back to the dividing of the land in the book of Joshua. The implication is very clear. The people of God are the new Israel in Christ, who is the true Israel. And our King, our Lord, our Savior has purchased a land that is far greater than any land that we could ever think of. A land that is far more wonderful than any land that we could imagine. A land that is ours because we have the Holy Spirit who has been poured out in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and the one who's been given into the poured out into the hearts and into the lives of the people of God as a down payment. So we see the fulfillment in the return. We see the fulfillment in the coming of Christ, and we will see it in full when Christ comes again. And let's be honest, the whole book of Acts is all about the dawning of the messianic age. It's all about what it means that the Son has come. What does it mean that the king has come? It means that he reigns supreme and he reigns over the entire world. It's all about the refreshment that he brings. The eschaton is its fullness, but we see that he's inaugurated the new age. He's inaugurated the messianic age and he's going to bring it in in full when he comes again, when this present age shall burn, when this present earth and this present heaven shall burn and there shall be a new heavens and a new earth, according to 2 Peter chapter 3. So the Lord loves his land. The Lord is jealous for his land. And the Lord pities his people. 
He considers who they are. He considers our frame. He knows that we are but dust. And so when we turn to him in fear, when we turn to him in repentance and faith, he has promised that he will hear. He has promised that he will answer. And we see that very clearly here in verse 19. How is it that he pities us? The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold. Sometimes we need the beholds in scripture, right? Because we don't always grasp it. We don't always believe it, right? Believing the word of God is very difficult for us, even for Calvinists, even for Christians, even for those who've been redeemed and look to Christ by faith. We can still struggle with faith sometimes. We can still have a weak faith. That is, we don't take God at his word. Does God really hear me? Does God really answer my prayers? Does God really listen to me? And the answer, according to verse 19, is yes. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold. And notice he's going to reverse and give back everything that was taken away in Joel 1. He says, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil. We saw that removed in Joel 1.10. The field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. We saw how the drunkards are going to cry out because they don't have any new wine. But now we see that in this restoration, in this time, there's going to be grain and new wine and there's going to be oil. There's going to be full satisfaction. The, the important agricultural means for Israel is going to be restored. It's going to be given to them and you will be satisfied by them. It'll be a blessing. You shall be filled. You shall partake and you shall be satisfied. And they shall no longer be a reproach. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Directly answering the prayer from 2.17. When the prayer is, why should they say, or it's why uh, do not give your heritage to reproach? Well, God is not going to make them a reproach. But notice it seems to imply that they were for a bit. Notice it says, I will no longer make you a reproach. It seems to be looking past the exile looking past that time when Israel was a byword, when Israel was a, a proverb in the sense that you don't want to be like Israel, they were a reproach and a shame. But now they will no longer be that very thing. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, or at least using this old covenant language, describe what it means to be in Christ Jesus. We're no longer a reproach among the nations. We're no longer a reproach before God because God has redeemed us and satisfied us and given us the blessings uh, that we cannot imagine. So we will no longer be, and we are no longer are, reproach among the nations. So there God pities them by blessing them, but we see that God is also going to pity by removing the enemies of God. And we see that in verse 20. God will bring judgment upon his enemies. Vengeance is the Lord's, says the Lord. So verse 20. I will remove far from you the northern army, and I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land. Locusts didn't typically come from the north, but locusts are mentioned in verse 25. So again, perhaps there is some interplay going on here. Perhaps there is, a, certainly locusts could be in view. Certainly there are different, uh, the, the armies of God are referred to as locusts and man, and then in Revelation uh, as demons as well. Uh, uh, so that, or sorry, uh, angels, I should say, for the army of God, the army of uh, 
Apollyon in Revelation 9 are demons, but for God, we see the army refers to different things. So locusts could be that, Babylon could be that very thing. Uh, so certainly both of those things are in view because the invaders came from the north. When Assyria comes, they come from the north. There's that barren wasteland east of Egypt, uh, so they have to go up and over. Babylon has to go up and over and come down, so they come from the north. Assyria had to go up and over, and they had to come from the north. So certainly locusts could be in view, but also certainly we can see that the armies are in view as well. But either case, they're going to be removed. They're going to be no more. Either case, the locusts shall be removed and Babylon shall be removed. I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land so that they're going to go into the barren land. They're going to go away from that lush land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. What this means is they're going to drown. And certainly we did see that with the locusts in Exodus chapter 10. What does God do when uh, Moses entreats God and asks him to stop at the behest of Pharaoh? He drives them by way of a west wind into the Red Sea. He drives them into the Red Sea and they drown. So the implication seems to be God is going to decimate Babylon. The rear and the front, the front of the army and the back of the army, they shall be driven into the seas. They're going to be no more. They are going to drown. And then they're going to give off a foul odor. They're going to give off a nasty stench. They're going to give off a nasty smell. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise. They shall know that that army is no more. They shall know that those who did monstrous things shall be gone. They shall know that those who did vile and awful things, their dead shall cover the land, and they shall offer a great stench to the land. So I don't know much about smells. I don't know how it works with the sea and that. So certainly it could be in view, not just the dead armies in the seas, but the dead armies laid waste uh, in battle as well. So the stench shall go up, his odor will rise because he has done terrible things. Great things is the language there. Great things, but they are terrible things. They are things that you can never imagine. And as we saw in chapter one, the locust coming is going to be such uh, that the, those with hoary hairs had never seen it before. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your Days. They have done monstrous things, but it is a sign of God's pity and goodness towards his people that he's going to, excuse me, to remove their enemies. And so one reason we ought to cry out to God based upon what we see in this chapter, in these verses, is that he pities. God hears. One reason we ought to cry out to God in prayer is because God is the God who hears us. If we are his, if we've called out to him, certainly by faith, turn to him in repentance, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what that means for the people of God in this life is if we call upon his name, he will hear us. That's what we saw in 1 John chapter 5. If we ask anything according to his will, know that he hears us. We might not always feel like he hears us. He might not always answer in the time that we would like, but he always hears us. And that is a great privilege of the people of God. 
I remember one of my professors in undergrad used to talk about his Muslim neighbor all the time. And he always used to witness to his Muslim neighbor and uh, he always talked about how he could pray to God and God answered his prayers. And the Muslim neighbor says, your God does that? You see, they, didn't, they don't even believe in a God who can answer prayers, brethren. But our God can answer prayers. Our God does answer prayers. We can turn to him, we can call upon him, and he will hear us and he will answer our prayers. Poole says, talking about the pity of the Lord, he says he considers their prayers, their arguments and tears, and upon the whole will deal so with them that they shall know I, God, do own them for my people, and that I will do them good. God knows us, God knows our frame, God pities us, God loves us, and God answers our prayers. That's how we know that he pities us, and he pitied the land and the people by giving this refreshment and by answering their prayers. So that is a land that is pitied. Let's then look secondly at a land that rejoices in verses 21 uh, through 24. So a land that is pitied now to a land that rejoices, verses 21 through 24, and we'll see the land rejoicing and the people rejoicing. Again, land and people go hand in hand. And so we see in verse 21, he calls the land to rejoice. Fear not, O land. There's some couplets here. Be glad and rejoice. Then we're going to see again, be glad and rejoice. Perhaps it pairs with verse 26 and 27. My people shall never be put to shame. My people shall never be put to shame. So rejoice and be glad. The people of God ought to have joy. The people of God ought to rejoice. And there are reasons for why we ought to rejoice and be glad. And we see the land ought to rejoice and be glad. One of the things that is promised in Leviticus 26, when we see the curses that are given there, we see that God says, he talks about everything that's going to happen if they do not obey. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness, which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, then I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant. The covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. I will remember the land. God said he would remember his land, the land. He said he would remember his people if they call out to him by faith, if they call out to him in repentance. And as we know that the Abrahamic covenant points ahead to that blessed new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is not the same as the new covenant, but it points ahead to Christ who is the seed according to Galatians chapter 3. But the land does not need to be afraid as it was afraid in Joel 1 and 2. We're seeing that reversal, that reversal language describe the restoration and the joy that comes later on in Christ the Lord and what that will mean for the people of God uh, in that eternal land, in Emmanuel's land, in that place where there is no night and a place where there is no sin. So do not be afraid. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Same word as the monstrous things. It's just used differently. When, uh, when Babylon does it, it's a monstrous thing. When they uh, pillage and destroy and kill, it's terrible. But when we see the Lord, he's done this marvelous thing by answering the prayers of God's people. And we see the reversal 
uh, of chapter 1 still. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field. Remember the beasts of the field cried out in chapter 1, verse 20? The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and the fire, ha uh, the fire, the fire has devoured uh, the open pastures. And so we see they, he has answered their cries. And just as he answered their cries, he also answers our cries as well. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are no longer burning, but they're springing up. So God heard that cry. God is reversing the desolation that is brought. And then we also see that the fig tree and the trees that were destroyed and brought to ruin in chapter 1, we see in verse 12, the vine is dried up, the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. But then we see that the tree bears its fruit in 2 verse 22. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. God answers the prayers and God reverses the language of reversal to describe the restoration that he brings. That which was ruined has now been strengthened. That which has been crying out to God because there's nothing to eat, they have plenty because the open pastures are springing up. The land can be glad and rejoice. And because of that, the people can be glad and rejoice. We see that in verses 23 through and 24. Be glad then, you children of Zion. Brethren, what does Hebrews 12 say when we come to worship? What mountain do we come to? Mount Zion. When we come to gather, brethren, we come to Mount Zion. Zion. We don't come to Sinai anymore. We come to Zion, the city of our God, that, that, that uh, place that has uh, where the elect gather. We come as the people of God to that holy mountain, even now as we worship God acceptably, for he is a consuming fire, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we are the children of Zion. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. And notice we see why. Because of the rain he gives. He has given you the former rain faithfully. And he will cause the rain to come down for you. Uh, for you the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. One thing that commentators point out is that the 12, the minor prophets, are you need to read them and do it in order. I know I didn't do that. I did Jonah and Nahum and did Malachi a while back, but now we're going backwards. But now we're going in order. We'll just skip those ones. But you need to read them in order. You need to see the flow. We need to see the theology and the connectedness of that. And we've seen the language used from Exodus 34 in Jonah and in Nahum and in Hosea and also in Joel as well with the one who is slow to anger and merciful and great kindness, all, those, all that language. That's in there a lot. Uh, another overtone is certainly the day of the Lord, but another one is rain. The former rain, the latter rain. We already saw this, didn't we? In Hosea chapter 6. You see, the language of rain is used and it has uh, eschatological overtones with it. The rain brings refreshment. The rain brings harvest. The, brain, the rain brings something that is needed after a drought. We see that the former rain brings regularity and refreshment after a dry time. The latter rain brings the mature crop. You need them 
if you want, were one who was a farmer uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world, if you were a farmer in Israel at this time, and God has given it, and God will give it, and God has provided, and we see the blessings that come with that. It was a blessing of the old covenant. If Israel did what God had said, Deuteronomy 11, verse 24, sorry, verse 14, then I will give you, if you honor the Lord God and serve him, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. So again, we see using old covenant language to describe new covenant realities. Why do I keep saying that? Because we know, based on what we see in verses 28 through 32, where is that fulfilled? Where is the inauguration of the new covenant era? It starts with the blood of Jesus Christ that is shed according to the, uh, uh, for the blood of the new covenant. But we see that it's out. Uh, the spirit is poured out in Joel chapter 2. The inauguration, the start uh, of the advancement uh, of the messianic age. And so even with the language of no longer looking ahead past exile, we see that the fulfillment comes in Jesus Christ in his first coming, and it shall come in his second coming as well. We'll talk more about the rain and the eschatological overtones in just a little moment. But notice what it will bring. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat. The vats shall overflow with new wine and with oil. It's like return, the return of life after a long winter. That is what the restoration is going to be like. That is why God's people need to cry out to God. Not just that he pities us, but that he brings restoration and rejoicing. That he brings refreshment for people who were parched. For people that, who were dead. For people who were starving. Brethren, you once were dead and now you're alive. You once were starving, and now you're full. You've tasted the bread of life. You once were thirsty, now you've partaken of the living waters, who is Christ Jesus. And it is in him that we have life, and it's in him that we then ought to rejoice and be glad. And as we consider the rain that refreshes, just turn with me to Hosea 6 again, just as a reminder of what we saw there. And I was struck when we were going through this and reading the commentators that this is the only prophecy about three days. With Jonah, yeah, he's in the belly of the whale for three days, but it's not a prophecy per se, although it does point ahead to our Savior according to what Jesus says. But it's not a prophecy or an explicit prophecy like we see here, although it does point ahead to the Savior. But the explicit prophecy is here. And it's in the context of repenting as well. Come, let us return to the Lord. And then we see verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth, that refreshment that we need. That, that, that the, the land that we need, the refreshing that the land needs, the refreshing that we need comes in Christ Jesus and starts by way of his resurrection, the one who was raised the third day. So we see that refreshment begin at his first coming, but we also see that we need to be patient until his second coming. Turn with me to James 5. 
He brings great joy in his first coming. He brings salvation in his first coming. Uh, But we have hope for his second coming. And James 5 is all about waiting. (laughs) Waiting for his coming and how we ought to live in light of that. But he's using, James uses these eschatological overtones, this early and the latter rain. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. There's the initial coming of Christ, or not the inaugur- I should say his comings are two sides of the same coin. We have the inauguration with his resurrection, and we have the consummation when he comes again. And he's going to come in due time just as the farmer waits for the early and latter rain. But it's not just a parable. Again, there is um, overtones that allude back to what we see in Joel. They're eschatological. This is eschatological. It alludes back to Hosea, which is eschatological. Remember eschatology? It's the last days, the study of the last things. But the last days began with Christ, right? It's just the time between Christ's first and second coming. It's just what everyone is looking for. It's just the bringing in of the kingdom. And he has come, he is bringing in his kingdom, and he will bring it in in its full. That's what eschatology really is is and certainly that aligns with what we see in joel what we see in hosea and how that's fulfilled in the resurrection of our savior and how it is used for the people of god in james 5 you can't say eschatology isn't practical not with respect to selling things and trying to figure out when christ coming to christ is coming to back but we can see what we ought to do as we wait. Be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He does seem to be taking a little long, doesn't he? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. I kind of want him to come back tomorrow or right now or, you know, but he does seem to be taking a long time. But Peter does say that a day with the Lord is like, you know, a thousand years uh, to describe the fact that God will come, Christ will come in his timing. Then he goes on to say in 9, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Isn't he? He is compassionate and and merciful and so what ought we to do as we wait well don't grumble or complain be patient and know that the lord is merciful and gracious so we ought to cry out to him because he is merciful and gracious we ought to cry out to him because he brings rejoicing we have participate in part now in the life to come the life we have now is well it is life And we have the promise that we shall have eternal life, body and soul, reunited in that world without end. So we have lots for which we ought to praise God. Lots for which we ought to cry out to God. And thankfully, our crying out to God and our calling upon his name brings salvation and brings rejoicing. So that is a land that rejoices. Let's then look thirdly and finally at a land that is restored in verses 25 through 27. And notice we see the restoration of the land in verses 25 through 26, and then the restoration of the people in verse 27. 
But notice again the reversal of the locusts. Verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. All going to use that same language. Again, don't ask me what each one means and what each one refers to because the commentators didn't, didn't really know. But it's talking about the totality of the destruction that was brought in Joel 1. And now we see the totality of the restoration and the reversal. Uh, that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. We saw how Babylon was also his great army in Joel 2, verse 11. So we see here the army of the Lord includes locusts, men, and angels. And with respect to what he's prophesying here is that they shall be no more. I will restore them. And as that desolation is taken away, they're no longer going to consume the food of the people. We'll see, we see in verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. You shall be full, again, alluding back to and connecting with what we saw in verse 19. You will be satisfied by the grain, the new wine, and the oil. And if our mouths are full, if our hearts are full, if we have been redeemed, what ought the people of God to do? Praise. And we see that. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. God has done a marvelous thing, and the people of God ought to sing praises to his name, to praise him for the salvation that he's wrought in you and I. After all, he is called the Lord of the what? the Lord of the harvest, to save people, to save sinners, to save sinners to do what? At the marriage supper of the Lamb, to rejoice, to feast, to eat with Christ in the new heavens and new earth as he promised and as he said, I will not eat or drink of the vine uh, again until we do so when my kingdom comes in full. And so there is this great hope that we have that we shall be with him. We shall enjoy him. We can enjoy him now. The Lord's Supper is that foretaste of the new heavens and new earth. Remember, it's a past, present, and future meal. What Christ has done, what Christ does for us now, and looking ahead to that blessed marriage supper of the Lamb. We can have joy. We can praise because we have plenty because of what he has done, who is dealt with wondrously with you. The Lord who is merciful and gracious has been merciful and gracious to you because he pities us, because he loves his people, because he is pleased to save his people. And my people shall never be put to shame. Again, we can rejoice and be glad because he says, my people shall never be put to shame. And then we see the restoration of the people with their God in verse 27. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Isn't that the most blessed thing? Not the food, although that's going to be great. But the most blessed thing is this, that we walk with God. And God walks with us. And God is in our midst. That I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. That's covenantal language. And as we know from Jeremiah 31, we know that he says in the promise in Jeremiah 31, prophesying about the new covenant is, I will be their God and they will be my people, which is then used in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 
to describe the new covenant era that comes in Christ Jesus. We have nearness. We have covenant relationship with God. We can call upon him as our God. He is our God. We are his people. And there is no other like our God. We don't need any other God because there is no other God because he is our God. The greatest thing about Emmanuel's land is Christ. The greatest thing about Emmanuel's land is knowing God and knowing him without the shackles. I know we've been freed from the shackles, but without sin, without remaining corruption, we can know him without being tired or heavy laden. It's going to be nice not to get tired, right? It's going to be nice not to be heavy laden in heaven. That is something I am looking forward to. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. And then the repeated, my people shall never be put to shame. Cannot be broken. Jeremiah 31 says it cannot be broken like the old covenant was broken because Christ did what Adam could not do. Christ did what Israel could not do. He kept the law, every jot and tittle in its perfection because you couldn't, because Adam couldn't, because Israel couldn't, that in him we have a righteousness that is not our own. In him, we have the forgiveness of sins. And because of him, the spirit is poured out. And we'll see that more next week in verses 28 through 32. But the third reason for which we ought to cry out to God is because he brings restoration. And it's not just that we get to cry out to God for help and aid, because he is gracious and good to help and aid us. But if we ask for aid, he will give it. But as he gives us that aid, we ought to praise his name. We ought to honor him. We ought to glorify him. We ought to recognize that he saves a people and he prepares a place for his people where his people are going to do what? They're going to say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the lamb who sits upon the throne. And one of the most beautiful things about Joel 32 is whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe upon Christ Jesus, if you turn to him, you shall be part of the new covenant and you shall have all the blessings and all the promises that that entails. The blessing of having eternal life, the blessing of having a new heart, the blessing of being changed, the blessings of that he gives and the hope that he shall come again and we shall be with him world without end. And remember, he saves a people to what? He saves a people to worship him. And one of my favorite hymns is hymn 295. And I'm just going to read a couple of the stanzas as we close this evening's service. The ends of all the earth shall hear and turn unto the Lord in fear. All kindreds of the earth shall own and worship him as God alone. For his the kingdom his of right, he rules the nations by his might. All earth to him her homage brings, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Both rich and poor, both bond and free, shall worship him on bended knee, and children's children shall proclaim the glorious honor of his name. And that is because of what Christ Jesus has done for us and the restoration that God brings for his people. Let us pray.
Oh, Lord, our God, we know that in our sins we were a dead, desolate, hungry, and thirsty people. And we are thankful that you have made us alive. We are thankful that you have satisfied us in Christ, who is the bread of life, and that you have had us to drink from the living water, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we are thankful in the new heavens and new earth that we shall always be satisfied. We shall always be full. And we are thankful that we have this because you are a God who pities us. You are a God who is good, a God who knows our frame, and a God who is pleased to save sinners, a God who, is, who has chosen a great multitude before the foundation of the world, and one who brings them to that salvation in time and space, the one who gives the new heart, the one who gives the gift of repentance, the one who gives the gift of faith. But we're thankful, O oh Lord, that you do so uh, by means. And thank you for that assurance and promise that whoever calls on your name shall be saved because you are the God who is merciful and gracious. And help us to remember that. Help us to know that. Help us to be reminded of the privileges that we have in Christ Jesus, that we can call upon you and you hear us. We can ask according to your will and you will answer according to your will. For there is no God like you. There is no other. You are our God and you are in our midst. You are the, Christ is in the midst of his lampstands. And we are thankful that we shall never be put to shame. So may this give us comfort and encouragement as there are many times that we still cry out to you as we deal with our remaining corruption, as we still see the sins and the torment and the sorrow that comes in this fallen, present, evil age. And as we deal with our own sins and see the torment that happens around us, help us to long for heaven all the more. Help us to appreciate the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we pray that tonight would have been a night of edification, a night of growing, a night of refreshment for your people as we consider the refreshing that you give in our Savior. And so we ask and pray that you would refresh us tonight and help us as we go out into the world, for we need your strength, we need your aid to press on and slog along in the difficulties of life. But we're thankful that each step that we take is one day closer to that celestial city. It is one day closer to heaven, and we long to be with Christ. We long to be with him, and we are thankful that we shall be because of what your word says. So give us that hope that we need. Give us, help us to walk by faith now. Give us that strength that we need as we go into the world, and we pray these things in the name of Christ.